Book Seven, Chapter Two of Round the Block by John Belbooten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. By steam, Tipples had selected as his first field of active operations the state of New Jersey. His large number of relatives, the Tiffleses, were prolific on the female side, and friends and occasional creditors scattered through New England and New York effectually barred him from all that territory. New Jersey, then Pennsylvania, then the West, those were the great topographical features of his campaign. For his initiatory performance he had chosen a quiet little town less than thirty miles from the city, on a line of railway. If his panorama was to be a hopeless failure at the very outset, Tipples wanted to be within striking distance of New York. He was sanguine of success, but like a prudent general he looked after his lines of retreat. To this small town in New Jersey, with which the fate of the great enterprise was to be indissolubly linked, Tiffles had sent a large stock of posters and handbills. He had previously corresponded, free of expense both ways, with that universal businessman of every American village, the postmaster and through him had engaged Washington Hall, the largest hall in the place, capable of holding six hundred people, at five dollars for one night, with the refusal of two nights more. The name of the hall and the night of exhibition were written in blank spaces on the posters and handbills with red chalk, in a fine commercial hand by Tiffles himself and for a small consideration the postmaster had agreed to stick up the posters on every corner, also on the post-office and the three town pumps, and to distribute the handbills in every house. These labors the P.M. did not undertake to perform personally, though he had plenty of leisure for them, as well as for the local defense of the national administration, which was his peculiar and official function but he turned them over to a semi-idiot, who occasionally did jobs of that kind, and who was willing to trust for his pay to the coming of Professor Wesley. The last letter from the postmaster ran thus. Years of the six received and contents, including for my personal expenses, duly noted. Washington Hall has been moped out for you, and is clean as a pin, Six new tin candlesticks have been put up in the anterum by the proprietor. This is liberal. All the handbills has been distributed, and the posters stuck up, some of em wrong side down, owin' to the bill-poster bein' a little weak-minded, which will be a kind of curiosity, and an advantage to you, I think. I have sent tickets to the village pastors and their families, as you requested, and they read the notices last Sunday and advised everybody to go. I have got public opinion all right for you here. Now come on with your panny-rammer of Afriki. Yours truly, B. Persimmon, P.M. This was cheering, and Tipples only hoped that he would be able to secure so faithful an ally in every postmaster for he had decided to do this preliminary work through that variety of public functionary, until the success of the panorama would justify hiring a special courier to go in advance and smooth the way for him. All these preparations having been satisfactorily made, 
and the panorama with the curtains, the lighting apparatus, and the other properties, having been forwarded in three enormous boxes to the scene of the impending conflict with public opinion, Tiffles made ready to follow, and on the eventful morning of the blank of April, 1850-blank, he might have been seen at the Cortland Street Ferry, accompanied by Patching, who had graciously consented to see how the thing worked on its first public trial. Patching pulled his enormous hat still farther over his eyes, so that he might not be recognized. This gave him an extremely questionable aspect, and the ticket-taker at the ferry peered under the huge brim suspiciously as Patching came in. He also attracted the attention of a detective in citizens' clothes, and was a general object of interest to all the people congregated in the ferry-house and waiting for the boat. "'This is fame,' muttered Patching, glancing at his scrutinizers from the shadow of the far-reaching hat. "'This is what people starve and die for. It is a bore.' He struck an attitude as if unconsciously folding his arms and appearing to be in a profound reverie. Then, after another cautious glance about, he turned to Tiffles by his side and said, It is useless. I am recognized. But remember your solemn promise. I had no hand in the painting of it. Not a little finger, my dear fellow, cheerfully replied Tiffles, who had given the artist similar assurances of secrecy five times that morning. At that moment a hand touched Tiffles familiarly on the shoulder. He turned suddenly, for he was always expecting rear attacks from creditors. He saw Marcus Wilkeson. "'Best of friends,' said Tiffles, with unfeigned joy. "'I am glad to see you. Of course you are going with us, though I hardly dared hope as much when I sent you the invitation.' To tell the truth, Tiffles, I had no intention of going till this morning, when it suddenly occurred to me that a little trip in the country, and the fun of seeing your panorama and hearing you lecture, would drive away the blues. I had a bad fit of them last night. Here Patching turned and looked Marcus in the face, without seeming to recognize him. It was his habit, not a singular one among the human species to pretend not to remember people, and to wait for the first word. Marcus indulged in the same habit to some extent, and when he saw Patching looking at him without a nod or a word, he also was blank and speechless. "'Don't you remember each other?' said Tipples. "'Mr. Patching, Mr. Marcus Wilkeson.' The gentleman shook hands and said, "'Oh, yes, how do you do? It is a fine morning. Very.' so much paler than when last I saw you, that I didn't know you positively. Little ill, sir? asked Patching. The artist was sure to observe and speak of any signs of illness on the faces of his friends and acquaintances. Some people called him malevolent for it. To be told that one looks pale always makes one turn paler. Marcus, extra sensitive on the point of looks, became quite pallid and said with confusion. I have not been well for several days, and my rest was badly broken last night. Tipples had also remarked the unusual deadly whiteness of his friend's complexion, and the air of lassitude and unhappiness which pervaded his face, 
but he would not have alluded to them for the world. He never made impertinent observations of that sort. Unwell, said Tiffles. I had not noticed it. In the morning, all New York looks as if it had just come out of a debauch. Wilkeson will pass, I guess. This calumny upon the city was Tiffles' favorite bit of satire, and it had cheered up many a poor fellow who thought himself looking uncommonly haggard. Marcus smiled languidly and turned away his head with a sigh. As his eyes swept about, they encountered the gaze of the man in citizen's clothes, previously noticed. At first Marcus thought he had seen this man somewhere before, and then he thought he was mistaken. The man evinced no recognition of Marcus, and an instant after his sharp glance wandered to some other person in a large group waiting for the boat. Here the boat came into the slip, and, after bumping in an uncertain way against the piles on either side, neared almost within leaping distance of the wharf. A solid crowd of passengers stood at the edge of the boat, with their eyes fixed on the landing-place, as if it were the soil of a new world upon which they were to leap for the first time, like a party of Columbuses. When the distance had been diminished to about four feet, the front row of passengers jumped ashore and rushed wildly up the street, as if impelled by a rocket-like power from behind. These people could not have been more eager to get ashore if they had come from the other side of the globe, on business involving a million apiece, to be transacted on that day only. In fact, they were only lawyers, tradesmen, mechanics, and clerks living in Jersey City, and going over to New York on their daily humdrum business. It was not the business that attracted them, but the demon of American restlessness that pushed them on. They went back at night in just the same hurry, and made equally hazardous jumps on the Jersey side. They were mere shuttlecocks between the battle-doors of Jersey City and New York. Tiffles and Patching lifted up the thin carpet-bags which reposed at their feet, and which contained an exceedingly small amount of personal linen and other attire, and went on board the boat, followed by Marcus, who was unencumbered with baggage. They entered the ladies' cabin. The thick crowd of people pressed into the cabin in their front and rear, and all about them, and scrambled for seats. There was a general preference for the part forward of the wheelhouse, because it was a few feet nearer New Jersey than the aft part. The rush to obtain these preferred places was like that of the opera-going world for the front row of boxes at a matinee. Ladies who obtained eligible seats settled themselves in them, spread out their dresses, put their gloved hands in position, and smiled with a sweet satisfaction at ladies who had got no seats. Those ladies, in turn, looked reproachfully at the gentlemen who were comfortably seated, and those gentlemen, with the exception of a few who rose and gracefully offered their seats to the youngest and prettiest of the ladies, in turn looked out of the windows, or at the floor, or at a paper, intently. A stranger to the ferry-boats and customs of the country would have supposed that the passengers were bound for Europe instead of the opposite shore of North River. Marcus Wilkeson, 
Tiffles and Patching did not participate in this contest for seats, but walked through the fetid and stifling cabins to the forward deck, where fresh, bracing air, glorious sunlight, and a cheery view of the river were to be had. But these charms of nature were apparently thrown away on the trio. They all leaned over the railing and looked steadily into the water. Tipples was thinking up his lecture and other matters of the panorama. Patching was misanthropically reviewing his career and exulting in future triumphs over his professional enemies. Marcus was engrossed with some sad theme which once or twice brought tears into his eyes. A burst of noble music, a fine sentiment in a poem, a poor woman crying, keen personal disappointment, or any acute mental trouble had this strange effect on the optics of Marcus Wilkeson. The bell rang. Voices shouted, All aboard! The gangplank was drawn in. Several belated people jumped on, at the risk of their lives, after the boat had left the wharf, one man vaulting over ten feet, and the voyage for Jersey was commenced. Three minutes later, the inmates of the cabins began to go forward and pick favorable positions for jumping off on the other side. The scramble to evacuate the seats, then, was as sharp as the scramble to possess them three minutes before. A few more rounds of the wheels, and the boat thumped in the usual way against one row of piles at the entrance of the Jersey slip, and then caromed like a billiard ball on the other each time nearly knocking the passengers off their feet and shaking a small chorus of screams out of the ladies. When the boat was within a yard of the wharf, the jumping commenced, and all the able-bodied men, most of the boys and some of the ladies, were off before the boat butted with tremendous force against the wharf, shaking both wharf and boat to their foundations, and giving to the people on both a parting jar which they carried in their bones for the rest of the day. Once safely on the wharf, the scramble was continued in various directions and for various objects. Marcus, Tiffles, and Patching indulged in the eccentricity of not scrambling, and when they reached the Erie Railroad cars they found every seat taken, some by two persons, but many by one lady and a bandbox or carpet-bag which was intended to signify to the inquiring eye that the lawful human occupant of that half of the seat was absent, but might be expected to come in and claim it at any moment. The three companions understood this conventional imposture, and politely claimed the spare half-seats from the nearest ladies. The fair occupants looked forbidding, and slowly removed their bandboxes, baskets, and other parcels to the floor beneath or the rack overhead, and the disturbers of their peace and comfort ruthlessly took the vacated seats with a bow, signifying, Thank you. The seats thus procured were some distance apart, and so the three companions were precluded from conversing with each other. This suited the taciturn mood of each that morning. As for the ladies who filled the other half of the three seats, they might as well have been lay figures from a Broadway dry-goods store, conversation with them being prohibited by the etiquette of railway traveling. A man may journey two hundred and fifty miles in a car, 
with his elbow unavoidably jogging a lady's all the way, and still be as far from her acquaintance, unless she is graciously inclined to say something first, as if the pair were leagues apart. This is proper, but peculiar. The strange sadness that possessed Marcus that morning was intensified as the cars rolled on. There is something in the monotonous vibration of the train, and the recurring click of the wheels against the end of the rails, that provokes melancholy. Marcus looked out of the window at the flying landscape, and the distant patches of wood which seemed to be slowly revolving about each other, and was profoundly wretched. He was totally unconscious of the sharp, pale, nervous face by his side. The owner of the face was about thirty-five years old, though the lines on her brow and cheeks added an apparent five years to her age. If she had been put upon her trial for murder, the police reporters would have discovered traces of great beauty in her countenance. An ordinary spectator, having no occasion to spice a paragraph, would have made the equivocal remark that she had once been handsomer. This lady was dressed plainly, comfortably, and in good taste. Her hands, ungloved, were shapely, but red and hard with manual labor. On the second finger of her left hand was a little gold ring, much thinned by wearing. The eyes of this lady were regarding the unconscious Marcus obliquely, with a singular expression of mingled recollection and doubt. Sometimes her glance would drop to the ring, as if that were a link in the chain of her perplexed reflections. A sudden jolt of the car, as the train ran over a pole which had fallen on the track, roused Marcus to the existence of this face and those eyes. As he saw the eyes sternly bent on him, he thought that his staring out of the window, past the lady's profile, might have offended her. So with a cough which was meant to serve as an apology for the unintentional rudeness, he turned his face away, and continued his gloomy reverie among the odd patterns of the oilcloth on the floor of the aisle. Still the thin, nervous lady watched him obliquely. A ride of three-quarters of an hour brought them to their destination, as they learned from a preliminary howl of the conductor through the rear door of the car. The engine bell rang, the whistle screamed, the clack of the wheels gradually became slower. Only one minute! Hurry! howled the conductor again. Marcus, Tiffles, and Patching were out of their seats and at the door with American dispatch. Before the car had quite stopped, they had jumped off. Marcus did not notice that behind him was a woman struggling between the two rows of seats with a bandbox, a work-basket, an umbrella, and her hoops, all of which caught in turn on one side or the other. Nor did the conductor observe that this burdened and distressed lady was trying to make her way out, for after looking from the rear of the train, and seeing that three persons had landed, and that there was nobody to get on, he concluded that it would be a waste of time to stop a minute, and so rang the bell to go ahead. The engine driver, equally impatient, jerked the starting lever, and the engine bounded forward like a horse, giving a shock to the train, and nearly upsetting the woman who was still wrestling with her personal effects between the rows of seats. 
With a sudden effort, she freed herself, opened the door, and stood upon the platform. The engine had wheezed three times, and she hesitated to jump. She screamed shrilly. The sound entered the ears of Marcus Wilkeson, who was whisking dust and ashes off his clothes with a handkerchief. He ran forward and saw the predicament of his pale and nervous fellow-traveller. She screamed again as the engine wheezed for the eighth time. Marcus extended his hand. Jump, he said. I'll catch you. She did jump, much to the surprise of Marcus and the two lookers-on, thereby indicating decision of character. Marcus caught her in his arms, bandbox, basket, and all, and the train hurried on. Thank you, sir, said the lady with some confusion. Then she walked rapidly down the road toward the village, like one who lived there. A customer for the panorama, perhaps, said Tiffles. I'm glad you landed her safely. Tiffles had got through his thinking and was exhilarate again. He laughed so pleasantly that even Marcus relaxed his grim visage and smiled. Not a bad ankle, that, observed Patching, looking at the rapidly retreating form of the rescued woman. Patching, artist-like, was always discovering beauties where nobody else looked for them. Marcus had no eye for the charms of nature that morning, and he responded not to the remark which the artist had addressed to him. Whereupon Patching determined not to speak to Marcus again that day. They followed the mysterious female down the road which led to the village. On the fences every few rods were plastered posters announcing the Panorama of Africa for that evening at Washington Hall. Tickets twenty-five cents, children under twelve years of age half price, etc., etc., as B. Persimmon P.M. had said in one of his letters. Some of the posters were stuck upside down. This circumstance did not seem to prevent the population from reading them, for the party observed at least two boys, half prices, in the act of spelling them out between their legs. Tiffles was so absorbed in the contemplation of the posters, patching in a critical survey of the scenery on both sides of the road, and Marcus Wilkeson in an introspection of his troubled heart, that none of them observed how often the thin nervous female, walking rapidly ahead, looked over her shoulder at one of their number. End of Book 7 Chapter 2